This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. It has been a busy year in Oregon news. 2023 saw the longest legislative walkout in state history and the first ever teachers strike in Portland public schools. Oregon's Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, who was next in line to be governor, resigned amid an ethics scandal. Voters seemed to sour on the drug decriminalization measure they passed just three years ago. And the national media soured on Portland, a city they could not get enough of a decade ago. What's more, the first psilocybin service centers in the country are now open and the storied Pac-12 imploded. We're going to talk about all of these stories and more over the next hour. When I say we, I mean my three very smart guests. Anna Griffin is OPB's news director. Scott Bruin is a former Republican state lawmaker. He is now the vice president of government affairs at the business advocacy group Oregon Business and Industry. And Nikenge Harmon Johnson is the president and CEO of the Urban League of Portland. The nonprofit focuses on empowering black and other communities in Oregon and Southwest Washington. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Hey, Dave. Thanks, Dave. I want to start with Measure 110, the ballot measure that Oregon voters overwhelmingly approved in 2020. It decriminalized the possession of small amounts of drugs like heroin and fentanyl and meth, and it funneled cannabis money to a wide variety of addiction treatment services. 2023 was a fascinating year for Measure 110 because a lot of that money finally started getting out the door. And at the same time, according to various polls large numbers of Oregonians turned against the measure. Scott, what happened? (laughs) Well, I think people drove or walked through the streets of Portland, and not just Portland, but Salem and Medford and other towns and cities across the state, and realized that the public use of drugs, the crime, the vandalism, the homelessness that's directly related to that didn't work. And I think a lot of Oregonians felt they were sold a bill of goods with Measure 110 three years ago. Draw the line for us between Measure 110 and what you're saying people all over the state saw. What is the direct connection for you? And and what are you assuming the connection is for other people? I think the most obvious connection is, I mean, I'll give you an example. Last Friday, a week ago today, uh, my wife and I were downtown for a Christmas breakfast event. And in the- in downtown Portland. Downtown Portland, I'm sorry, yeah. And in the car, or excuse me, in the um, uh, the parking structure where we parked, we get into the elevator. And this wasn't, you know, this was actually a nice part of the uh, you know, you know quote unquote, a nice part of town. And in the elevator was uh, a gentleman stooped over uh, completely, you know, I mean, conscious and all that, but drugged out. And I think that's just not uncommon anymore. And and uh, I think, you know, that keeps people from going into the bigger cities, especially Portland. I think it's a challenge. And I think one of the things that we have, uh, you know, one of the lost parts of the conversation of all this is is what has changed with kind of the drug epidemic that we're currently, currently dealing with. You look at kind of, the, you know, we've always had drug, we've always had drug abuse, we've always had overdoses. I mean, but, but what we're seeing right now with Measure 110 in Portland and other cities is something that we've never seen before. Not only do we have the addictions and the overdoses, but unlike, and, and people have always died from overdoses, don't get me wrong, but the exponential increase in just flat-out death is unprecedented. And so Measure 110 took, I think, some tired old notions, some tired dogmas, some old way of dealing with things, at the same time that fentanyl and carfentanil and these other th- synthetics that are, I mean, fentanyl's 50 times as, as strong as, as heroin, are coming onto the market. So it just simply doesn't work. Nikenge, 
How do you think a huge policy change like drug decriminalization should be assessed? I mean, what to you is is the data that matters or what are the outcomes that you think we should be paying the most attention to? Well, Dave, I'll start with the fact that, you know, the fentanyl crisis uh, and drug overdoses are up all across America. If you walk through any city in America, you will see the kinds of things uh, that uh, my colleague here was just talking about. It's not special to Portland, but Measure 110 in decriminalizing drugs is special to Portland. So it's not as if, though, those places that are still hard on drugs and really fighting the war against drug in the old-fashioned way have different outcomes. So I want to be clear with our listeners today that Measure 110 didn't cause what we're seeing on our streets. Fentanyl has caused what we're seeing in our streets. Beyond that, a lack of treatment for people um, has caused what we're seeing in our streets. And I think it's really important for us to pay attention to that. So in terms of what metrics I would like to see, um, you know, before the pandemic, and it's the last time I'm uh, familiar with this number, seven, we are a high addiction, low treatment state. And then alcohol, not drugs, alcohol. And when we attempted to pass, well, some of us attempted to pass um, attacks on booze in our state so that we could pay for more addiction treatment, there was huge pushback from the industry. I understand why, but other big in industry and chambers of commerce were silent about it. They didn't have the outrage that they have currently found Measure 110. So I would love to see, frankly, what the numbers are now in terms of the number of Oregonians who die each day because of addiction, both drugs and alcohol. But let's be clear, the number was already much too high and alcohol was the bigger threat to health and safety of Oregonians and we did nothing about it. But suddenly, now that certain people have to see the scourge in their elevators and in their downtown and the places that they love that used to be free of such images, helpful ways, they just want to sort of recriminalize and go back to the old fashioned stuff that we know doesn't work. That way we were already losing seven Oregonians a day. They can't tell me that the idea of recriminalizing uh, doing some of these new things that they're about to pump a lot of money into convincing Oregonians are gonna work will actually work because we tried them before and people are dying Nikenge, we're going to work on your connection because uh, you were cutting out a little bit here and there. But Anna, I mean, one of the things that, that both Nikenge and Scott were talking about there is this confluence of the voter past Measure 110 and, and almost at the same time. We, I remember hearing a little bit about fentanyl before 2020, but nothing like today. And, and the numbers bear that out. I mean, how much of what we're talking about here is the bad luck, the timing of the flood of fentanyl hitting around the country right when Measure 110 was taking effect. Yeah, I, I think that's such a smart point, Dave, because this is it, it's it's far too simple to say drug decriminalization is the reason we are seeing so much public drug use, is the reason overdoses are up, is the reason the world is falling apart. Measure 110 was pushed on Oregon by outside groups that wanted, saw this as a place where they could pilot decriminalization. There were voters willing to say yes to that. Advocates for the recovery community in Oregon, when Measure 110 was on the ballot, were saying, we are not ready for this. We do not have the programs in place. It is not going to work the way you think it's going to work. That 
is exactly what has happened. It's not just Measure 110 and a rise in fentanyl. It is Measure 110. It is a rise in fentanyl. It is a state that does not have the systems in place to provide recovery services for people. And so I think it's way too simplistic to say it's drug decriminalization. I also think it's way too simplistic to say it's fentanyl. The reality is we don't have the network of supports to do what we said we're going to do. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. Well, I want to turn, Scott, to, to this yeah. the second half of Measure 110, which has absolutely gotten attention, meaning that you know funneling cannabis tax money to various kinds of, of drug treatment or recovery services. There was a, a recent, um, the, the, the latest... Uh, look at how that money is being spent that we just got for the audit from the Secretary right. of State's office. But what do you make broadly of yeah. the way the money is being spent? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, just to back up for a moment, I think both Nikinge and Anna are, are, are absolutely correct in what they say directly or even indirectly that if we were to repeal Measure 110 tomorrow, that does not eliminate the problems that we're dealing with. I mean, the, the problems preexisted 110, and frankly, they will, it, it, even if the legislature or uh, uh, through another ballot measure the people of Oregon were to repeal Measure 110, either in part or in whole, we will still have the problems of drug addiction. Um, part of that is exactly to what you're getting at, Dave, is is the treatment. Now, what, what's interesting with the, with the, as you say, the second part of Measure 110 and the large amounts of money that have been collected, um, it's it's not being utilized toward, toward recovery. And part of that is because we've given the folks the choice to whether to engage in that sort of recovery. And guess what? We've, we've seen the numbers. I, I forget them off the top of my head, but it is amazingly low. I think the numbers are in the dozens or, or you know, low 100s as far as the people that have actually chosen. That, so the, the, the drug abusers, drug users that have decided on, the, on their own to use these treatments facilities. It just doesn't happen. The, 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 if the, if the I recall, I, I think what you're talking about is in the moment, if, if a police officer gives somebody a card and says, call this number, exactly. that's low, which is separate. I'm not sure that we even have yet the statewide meaningful data to say this many more people on their own have sought services because this amount of services has been ramped up. That, that does strike me as that is a different number. And that's not exactly the one you're referring to. Right. But I guess what I'm wh- the point I'm trying to get to, though, is what we are not doing is compelling treatment. So we're dealing with a hardened we're, we're, we're dealing with the most potent drugs that mankind has ever known with a with an exponential rise in the in the cause of death from these drugs. And yet we are not compelling people to treat treatment. There is an intersection with law enforcement that's not being utilized right now. And that is the conversation that I think is happening with some of the folks that are looking to reform Measure 110. It'll certainly be part of the conversation when the Oregon legislature convenes in 2024 as they, as they, as they correctly seek to find a problem to this situation, or excuse well, me, seek to find a solution to the situation. Nikenge, the, the governor, as you well know from the, the Central City Task Force that we'll talk about a little bit more in just a bit, um, she is asking lawmakers to let cities criminalize just the public use of drugs. She's not calling for them to recriminalize the possession of drugs, meaning she's not calling for a major overhaul of Measure 110, despite a very public effort on the part of some former lawmakers, uh, Max Williams, former head of corrections, and and others uh, to, to do just that. What are you expecting in the short legislative session that's something like a month away? Nikenge, are you there? All right, we're going to work on Nikenge's phone line. Um, Anna, what about you? I mean, the, the governor says, hey, I, I have agreed with some mayors and a bunch of other people that we're going to have to do something. Uh, we'll give them the power 
to um, to say cite people for the public consumption of drugs, but she is stopping short of the major overhaul of Measure 110 in terms of what she's asking lawmakers to do. What are you expecting from Salem? I, th- I think you're going to see a nibbling around the edges of this issue in February, and then I think in November, you're going to see the state of Oregon vote on whether or not to repeal Measure 110. Hmm. Although I, I agree with Anna 100 percent, but I think there's – if they wait until after the legislative session in – you know, by the end of – or mid-March is when that will end. And if they don't have the sort of reforms that a lot of the pro-reform groups are, groups are looking for, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a stretch to try to get the signatures. I mean then it becomes a real issue of, of can you collect enough signatures? Can you get on the ballot? And what about all the, the, the voices and entities that were for that in, in 2000? 20, they're already talking about the monies they have to put in to save the, quote unquote, save their system. And a statewide campaign would be so nasty. Exactly. The images you will see on your TV if this goes to the ballot will be absolutely apocalyptic. Well, Anna, I mean, that does that does remind me of the already often apocalyptic coverage that we saw this year from The New York Times, from The Washington Post, from so many different places, The Atlantic. Portlanders who've been here for a decade or more will well remember there was a time when all these places loved Portland, couldn't get enough (laughs) of us. And we were sort of this, you know, shining city on a hill with great food and and everything was perfect. Now it's almost like we are the mirror image of that, the the kind of poster child for all of society's ills. Uh, Broadly, what do you think the national media has gotten right in their coverage and and where do you think it's fallen short? Yeah, yeah, I would would always hate to criticize the mainstream media, Dave. We don't do that here. Um, But I I do think the depictions, it's a fun narrative. It's an appealing intellectual narrative. A city that figured everything out suddenly falling apart, right? All the liberal policies that were passed in Portland that got us all that glowing coverage for being a foodie town, a town that was solving big societal problems through the force of government. It, it is a fun national narrative to say, look, none of it worked. I, I do think what the national media has gotten right is we are a case study in what happens when you don't have the resources available and, and you're not thinking through the unintended consequences of things like drug decriminalization. That is what happened here. Doesn't mean drug, drug decriminalization is bad policy, but it does mean policies have unintended consequences. And if you don't think ahead, you're going to be in trouble. I, I would argue that what you're seeing in the national media, it, it's, it's hyperbolic. It is not reflecting the reality of many Portlanders who live and work in Portland. But we do, as a city, as a community, have a problem similar to the problem that other major American cities faced. We don't know how to come back from COVID. We have not responded to the economic realities of many people don't want to commute. Office space is going to sit vacant. And and frankly, we have kind of gotten out of the business in this city of coming up with creative solutions to what are essentially urban planning problems. Nikenge, can you hear us right now? I can hear you just fine, Dave. Oh, you good. just couldn't and, hear me. Is this any better? <laughs> well, it needs to go both ways. I've learned over the years on, on radio. So uh, <laughs> all the things that we've talked about here, in addition to the city's enormous homelessness program, which is tied to in some ways, overlaps with, but is distinct from in significant ways. But all of this led the governor to convene the Central City Task Force that you were a part of. They met for 
a couple of months behind closed doors and then recently put out a, a whole list of recommendations. What most stands out to you from that experience? Uh, the policy in our state is in communities is made the way I thought it was. And what I mean by that is, you know, I do a lot of grassroots work and engaging with community and we tussle over ideas and we go back to community and we go back and tussle again. This was a very brief process in which in some ways the, oh, I don't know, masters of industry walked into a room with gripes, with ideas that they thought would be the answers and decided to make those the policy recommendations for the most part. Um, it was what I, how you see it in the movies, quite frankly, um, because they had a problem, we all had a problem, and we would go about resolving it in the way that they saw fit, rather than in the really organic, policy-making, community-based way that I'm used to, that I hope that process would entail. The task force's final recommendations include everything from, the, the, as we talked about, the call for allowing cities to ban the public use of drugs, to stepped-up enforcement and shelter services, to neighborhood cleanups, as well as a moratorium on new taxes in the Portland metro region as a whole for something like three years. How much of this do you think is actually going to be implemented? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I all right. <laughs> we went from Zoom that died to a cell phone that died. Um, Dave, can I jump in? Please, please jump in. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think what the Portland Central City Task Force uh, is was a recognition that the city of Portland is a concern statewide, not just to the people of the of the region of Portland. And so whether you are a supporter, you know, whether you are a voter for uh, voted for Governor Kotek or not, you, you ha in, in my opinion, you have to you have to kind of tip your hat to her for her strong leadership and and uh, concern for this issue and putting that task force together, making sure that task force was working quickly and making sure that task force was generating ideas on a timely basis. And as she said as the, at the business summit, I think just two weeks ago, this is just the start. I mean, it's not enough to issue a piece of paper and walk away and wash your hands and say, we're not. This is, this is start. Now roll up your sleeves and get going. So I, I think most from the business community, certainly I personally applaud her and those efforts and I applaud the efforts of the Portland City Task Force. I think that I actually, and I also have, uh, you know, maybe it's unfounded, but a, a, a degree of confidence in the court and the and the in the current Portland City Council, at least they are seeing, unlike past councils, the devastation that, as, as Anna talked about, being the, the pointy edge of progressive policy nationwide, the, the challenges that has created when you, when you start adding decades onto that. The question will be what happens next. I'll take one that's of particular interest to me. It's the call for a moratorium on taxes in, the, in the Portland and the region. This was a wonderful thing to do when you look at the massive increases in taxes that have happened in the region, we, we, we being OBI. I, along with Ernst & Young, did a study in just 2022 that talked about the massive increases in taxes in the Portland area, more than 30% rise in taxes since 2019. And just to add to that, Portland now, Port, the Portland region, excuse me, now has the second highest marginal income tax rate in the nation, second only to New York City. But the difference between New York City and Portland is that New York City, the top marginal tax rate kicks in for individual earners who make $25 million a year, must be nice. Uh, and it kicks in for people that live in Portland at $125,000 a year. So effectively, we have the highest tax rate in the nation. So the moratorium is a good idea. It's 
stop adding on, but really the real meat of it will be, can we back any of it off? Can we find some tax reform? Because all the people that left Multnomah County, all the people that are fleeing because of taxes and going somewhere else, all the people who are seeing that their taxes aren't paying for the services they expect and want, they're not going to be they're not going to be convinced because there's a freeze on taxes. What they need to see is either more something happening with the money they're spending or some sort of tax reform that lowers the tax burden. If you are just tuning in, we're talking right now about some of the biggest stories of 2023. Scott Bruin is the Vice President of Government Affairs at the business advocacy group Oregon Business and Industry. Anna Griffin is OPB's News Director, and Kenge Harmon-Johnson, who I should say we are still trying to get back on, but technology is is has been a foe so far, is the President and CEO of the Urban League of Portland. I want to turn to the Republican legislative walkout. It was the longest in state history. It lasted for six weeks. Anna, just remind us, if you will what caused it, and how it eventually ended. Sure. I mean, everybody who follows politics in Oregon knows that Republicans who are in the minority in both chambers have taken to using one of the few powers at their disposal, taking their ball and going home, to block Democrats from holding votes on on big topics with which the GOP disagrees. This year, it was guns, and it was abortion. Um, On abortion, Republicans objected specifically to a provision in a sweeping piece of legislation that strengthened abortion laws and also strengthened rights to gender-affirming care that would have uh, have essentially removed parental control over abortion access for people under the age of 15. On guns, among other things, they objected to a tightening of state gun law that would have raised the minimum age for purchase from 18 to 21. At the end of the day, Democrats ended up making a deal because lawmakers had so many other things they needed to get done. So they ditched the minimum age change for guns, and they tweaked that parental control on abortion to say that people under 15 can get an abortion without parental consent if they have two doctors from separate medical practices concluding that informing the parents would be harmful to the patient. Scott, what lessons do you think that Democrats took from the walkout? Huh. Um, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective before, Dave, but I would. <laughs> That's I, what I, I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> Get me without my prepared notes. Um, you know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, they have to, well, I would say, first of all, they they understand that they can't get done what they need to get done without Republicans. I mean, at the end of the day, there has to be compromise. There has to be, there has to be a fair opportunity for compromise. Everything can't be just pushed down from the leadership uh, in, a, in a legislature that's split. Now, there's no question that Democrats have majorities, and they've had majorities for a long, long time. Uh, they don't have super majorities right now, but we've, we've even been on the edge of that for a while. But nevertheless, in the system that we have, the minority has a voice. And, and I think the minority was, uh, in some cases, uh, justifiably so, feeling that the minority opinion, the minority voice was simply not being heard. So as Anna said, there's very few tools in in, in the legislature, the, in, in our legislature, the way it's structured, without the walkout, and I, I'm not here to necessarily defend the walkout because we, and I'm not defending it. We all want government to work, and uh, this, and we we see a situation this year where it simply did not. But we also have to remember that the Republicans in the minority have used this tool, but Democrats, when they were in the minority, have also assist, used this tool. Yeah, the well. larger context here for folks who uh, may not remember, although my guess is if you're listening right now, you, you don't need this reminder, but here it comes, is that voters passed a constitutional amendment last year, overwhelmingly intended to prevent exactly the thing that happened. The amendment bars a lawmaker who has more than 10 unexcused absences from running for reelection. Everybody agrees on that. 
But the timing of when you can't run is where the big legal fight is. Oregon's Democratic Secretary of State found that eight conservative senators who had more than those absences cannot run this coming November. The senators sued, saying that the constitutional amendment says that they're barred from running after their current term is up. The term ends after the next election, and so that's why they say that they actually can run in November. The case is in front of the Oregon Supreme Court right now, and it's going to hinge on whether the justices think that the clear language of the Constitution is paramount or the clear intent of the voters. Scott, I have a feeling I know where you fall here. <laughs> well, I, it, well, my sense is, I, I, I guess I, you know, reading the tea leaves with the Oregon Supreme Court, my sense is that what's going to come back is that the as is a ruling. I, I may be wrong, but a ruling that says that they can't run again. So that will create a scramble that's already sort of started, but will create a scramble that will also be a little challenging for good governance, or at least to, to give people the kind of the background experience they need. And that you're going to see a whole bunch of House members filing for uh, Republican House members filing for Republican Senate seats. You're going to see new candidates filing into those those Oregon ha Republican House seats. So it's going to be a little bit of a scramble. And I just you know I have to step back just a foot and say this is all unfortunate. Um, there are important things that have to be done in Salem, and whether they're in session or whether they're all new. And and we've seen the, you know the last at least the last session we've seen an extraordinary amount of new people in the legislature, which is great. To a degree, but also an incredible learning curve when it comes to uh, when it comes to getting people up to speed, getting uh, uh, chairs up to speed, getting committee members up to speed, and you take that in light of the fact that there was a walkout. It just creates a whole bunch of uh, challenges and chances to not get the good things done that we have to get done. And from, I mean, everybody has their priorities, but from a business community too, we had uh, we had really big priorities going into the 2023 session. Thankfully, the way it came out, a lot of those were were saved. A lot of it has to do with the semiconductor industry and other areas. Uh, but it was a lot of people were not confident for a long time. And we don't want to see that again if we can avoid it. And uh, the the arguments in favor of the Secretary of State, the arguments that came from Democratic groups or, or groups long aligned with them, Basic Rights Oregon, Planned Parenthood, Public Employee Unions, they basically said this, and they said literally this, that the Republican lawmakers are relying on a, quote, overly literal or solely textual reading of ballot measure 113. Where are we if we don't read the language of our state constitution in the plainest way possible? If we can say, no, 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 you know what we meant. But you did know what they meant. I mean, that, that, that's the problem here is that everybody knew what they thought they were voting on. <laughs> Yeah, but and I guess, was, but it's, and, and this is, I mean, we're in a sense, we were having oral arguments for the Supreme Court. But I mean, I guess I really mean, if 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 intent is all that matters, then what's the point of the text? You know, the, the bigger challenge here, and, and I think Scott got into this a little bit, is is Republicans did feel like they had no other choice but walk out because it, it, so many of the problems that we are facing in Oregon right now boil down to an inability to compromise and an inability to see in shades of gray and craft policy in shades of gray and understand that, that you need 50% plus one to pass something. And many times, smart policy, nobody loves it, but everybody can accept it. We have put so many things off because people are worried Republicans are going to walk out, because people are worried some group, public employees, business 
union, whoever, someone with enough influence to get things on the ballot are going to repeal it eventually. And so many of the problems that we're talking about today, drug decriminalization, fentanyl recovery, public school funding, all that boil down to big decisions being put off about things like how we pay for public services in Oregon, what we think the role of government is. And I I think it all, you know, you talk about wanting us to follow the actual words that are written on paper. And we just, we're incapable of even keeping legislature, the legislature in town to get basic work done. How can we craft changes to the Constitution that make sense? Part of this too, I mean, I just, uh, oh. To me, one of the things t- that's interesting that connects these first two big, big, big topics we talked about, the Measure 110 and, and now the walkout, is that both of them are the repercussions of voter-passed measures. One, a constitutional amendment, one just, you know, um, uh, just about statute. And, and we're not talking about close votes. 58% of voters approved Measure 110. Um, 68% said yes to Measure 113 to end walkouts. I'm curious, Scott, first, if you think that this collective experience is going to play into the way, especially people who oppose ballot measures in the near future, in the coming five years, the way they try to get Oregonians to say no. Well, I mean, I, I think it does. I'll back up just a second because I think it goes to what Anna was saying. We, we've seen this inability to compromise, and, what's, and it, it, what's, what's driving that inability to compromise is a nationwide, and we have an Oregon manifestation of it, of the pushing of the partisans, of the hardcore base partisans out farther and farther and farther, who put more and more pressure on their elected leaders to toe the line, and any, any, you know, any step out of the line, if you will, becomes a very problematic thing from a election perspective. Republicans faces, Democrats faces. And so that does make the ability to compromise even further. And we see a degree of that, Dave, I think when you're talking with ballot measures. A ballot measure by default is a non-compromised piece of you know potential statute that gets put on the books. Oregon Oregonians can vote yes or no. The money's going to there to either to either, you know, scream the most uh, maybe that almost maybe outrageous kind of points you know, for something and, and, and the extreme point on the other side, too. It's not the best way to make law. It does cater more to the extreme partisanship, the extreme, and that's not even the right word for it, but but I think you know what I'm getting at, that, that kind of the edge pushing of, of law and statute. Uh, and by, by default, I mean, because the legislature couldn't do it or the legislature won't do it, ballot measures are non, uh, they're, they're, they're just, they are non-compromise instruments. <clears throat> Spoken like a former lawmaker, I gotta say. So who says, <laughs> it should let, be done in Salem let more often us than not. Do yes. this, uh, or a cur- current lobbyist. All right, uh, Scott and Anna, we gotta take a quick break. We have a lot more coming up. Stay tuned. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, you're late. The show started 30 minutes ago. Um, we are spending the hour talking today about the biggest stories of 2023. You missed a rollicking first half of the show. You can get it on the rebroadcast at 8 p.m. or on our podcast. Our guests are Anna Griffin, OPB's news director, and Scott Bruin, vice president of government affairs at Oregon Business and Industry. And I'm really sad to say that Nikenge Harmon Johnson, president and CEO of the Urban League of Portland, her connections were just not working. So we're going to push onward. Let's turn to the Portland public school strike, which anybody who is remotely connected to Portland schools will remember well. It was the first one in 
district history. It lasted for almost the entire month of November. Anna, what were the issues at the heart of the strike? Dave, I want to tell you it was the fundamental broken nature of public education in the United States, but I think you want more specifics than that. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, planning time for teachers, class sizes, whether they should be capped, teacher pay, obviously, and the state, the physical state of our public school buildings within the city of Portland's largest district, things like mold and mice and other kinds of nasty teaching conditions. In the end, some of what teachers were asking for just never happened. In in particular, a hard cap on class sizes. They did, in the end, meet just about in the middle in terms of cost of living adjustments, just where you'd expect sort of standard labor negotiations to end up, even if at times this was a really heated and longer than some folks expected strike. Scott, what do you think the lasting effects of the strike might be? Well, I mean, to go back to the points you just made, which is ultimately they found a pay raise in the middle of what the district and what the teachers union was advocating. At the end, they found a compromise when it came to teacher planning. I mean, basically, they spent a month in a strike position and the kids were out and parents were left abandoned, if you will. And at the end of the day, they came to the same place that they would have come to if they'd had mandatory arbitration like 37 other states across the country did. So I think that's, you know, one of the issues that certainly the Oregon legislature has to look at is should, you know, a teacher strike be legal in Oregon where it's not in 37 different states. I do know that the Oregon legislature has voted on this. I think it was, I mean, I think the last time was, I may be wrong, but it was in the late 70s or the early 80s. So it has been a really long time since the Oregon legislature has talked about this issue and voted on it. I think it's something in the in the interest not only of Portland people, Portland residents, but uh, people across the state uh, to look at again. As far as the lasting impact, I mean, I think it a little bit goes to the kind of the conversations that we've been having already today, Dave. We've got, you know, there's no winners in this. The kids certainly weren't winners, um, especially coming out of the COVID challenges where they lost ground because of, uh, you know, just the the inefficacy, if you will, of, of, of doing school from home. Uh, we see every year where Oregon, where Portland and where Oregon writ large kind of fares compared to other public school systems across the country. Certainly wasn't a win for for um, uh, for the parents, especially the ones without means that had to, you know, how do, how do you manage that for a month? And ultimately, I don't think it was a, a, a win for either the community or Portland teachers. It, it further erodes the, the goodwill or further erodes the image of Portland to folks living in Portland. If, if they were on the edge, uh, why do you stay, especially if you have kids in school? And if you're looking at Portland from outside of Portland and you see the other challenges we've already talked about, uh, then double down with a month-long teacher strike and, and p- possibly some in the future, I think it just, I think it hurts. Anna, the district is going to have to find $130 million in some combination of savings and cuts and maybe new revenue over the next three years. Do you think that parents who supported the teachers, supported the strike, might come to think differently about everything, about the month of November, as the size of the cuts becomes clear? And it's, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering specifically is, if those cuts end up actually meaning teacher positions are cut? You know, I I think the thing that everyone 
recognizes right now, I hope everyone recognizes, because this is a conversation that's not just taking place in Portland, right? You have union negotiations in other large districts in Oregon. You have huge funding problems. And Salem other comes to mind as, as I mean, the, sec the, I right. think the second largest district in the state, and they're, they're dealing with huge budget issues and, right now. And you have funding crises in small rural districts and big urban districts all over the state. The thing that we have not reckoned with as a state is that the public school funding challenges, they're not the responsibility of any school board. They're not the responsibility of any individual teacher union. It is a statewide systemic problem that gets back to really unclear philosophy in the state about how we want to pay for basic public services and which basic public services we want to pay for. You know, you see counties giving up on libraries. You see cities giving up on police departments because the money is just not there. And so many school districts, so many communities rely on essentially a patchwork quilt of various taxing strategies, largely because leaders at the statewide level have not had hard conversations about what we can and can't do. Things like the kicker, what is and isn't on the table when we talk about revenue. I have been in Portland long enough to remember a time when it was a point of pride in the city that something like 85% of parents sent their kids to the public schools. What the strike really did for me as somebody whose kids are aging out of the public schools is just kind of reaffirm the sad truth that that is not what this place is anymore. We do not have that kind of pride in our public school system. And honestly, I don't know how you get it back. Um, Scott, after the strike, Governor Kotek did say that it highlighted the need for more K-12 funding. Do you see an appetite in Salem to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, we heard that. And I think we have to be careful about just a first automatic assumption that it is a budget issue and, and a resource issue, meaning it's not enough. I think we have to be very careful about that, especially when you start looking at the numbers. I mean, in this current biennium, the 23-25 biennium, we're, we're the, the kind of the school funding formula aspect coming from the state is $15.3 billion. That includes almost $9 billion in general funds as well as other funds. We also have to remember that it was just a few years ago that we passed the corporate activities tax, which is basically the sales tax that companies that make over a million dollars pay uh, to fund to fund student success and fund, and fund schools. And so you look at it from just a, a big dollar perspective and you have to think, I, is it really a resource question or is it a factor of where those dollars are being spent, how those dollars are being spent, and the efficacy of those dollars being spent? So one of the things that Governor Kotek did say that, that, that certainly I strongly support, and I think a lot of people strongly support, is the, is the, is the need and the urge for transparency. We have to understand much better than we do as a, as, a, as a citizenry in Oregon where these dollars are being spent, how they're being spent, and try to match the, you know, that when we, when we hear calls for new, for new funding, match that with the funding we're already sent. I just, I think we're a long ways from there. And until we can answer that question, I don't think we can have a real serious conversation about some new or vastly increased source of funding. I want to turn to Shamia Fagan. It seems like a long time ago now, but this year saw the abrupt fall of Oregon's second highest ranking statewide elected official and someone seen as a, a real star in the statewide Democratic Party. Anna, can you just remind us the basics of the story? What did Shamia Fagan do? Sure. Essentially what she did as Secretary of State, as the person running the agency that does things like audits on the cannabis, cannabis industry, she took a 
side gig as a private consultant to the tune of $10,000 a month or so for one of the state's most politically active cannabis companies. Um, She initially said she'd done nothing wrong, really, and tried to keep her job. She said she was canceling her contract with the firm, apologizing if she'd broken public trust. But the calls for her to resign grew very loud, in part because at the same time she announced this consulting firm, her agency released an audit of the cannabis industry and cannabis regulations that was very, very friendly to the people she had taken the private consulting gig with. Uh, After her resignation, it also came out, investigations underway, that she had done some state travel while Secretary of State on state dollars that included her family and her dog, the Secretary of State. Investigations (laughs) continue. Scott, one of the more striking things about this was just just how quickly... Uh, and in terms of my memory, all the, the top leaders of Oregon's Democratic Party establishment just bailed on Fagan. The press yeah. releases weren't, let's take this slowly, let's see. It was basically, this was terrible, she should resign. How do you explain that? Well, I, I actually think this is a case where, you know, where maybe we have lack of transparency in school funding. We have we do have pretty good transparency when it comes to uh, political um, uh, challenges like this. I mean, I th- it, you know, she, it, when it was discovered, uh, it was uh, the, the powers that be acted pretty quickly. She was, you know, f- effectively ousted from office and we move on. So I think in a way the system worked from that perspective. And I'd take it a step further and say one of the one of the policy fallouts from this, uh, and, and you know, we've had other instances in our past, but one of the one of the the twenty the two thousand twenty three session policy fallouts with this was fin- Oregon finally getting an impeachment provision in statute. So that was that was a missing component. Um, uh, you know, that the the way to effectively have a uh, a political based, a legislative based way to remove people from office when they're scandals. Um, so I, I take that as a positive. Dave, I, I would I would note. I mean, it, it, Fagan made terrible decisions. This was a complete implosion. This was entirely on her. One of the things I think many of us, even those of us in media who cover state politics, learned in the course of covering this story is that the Secretary of State, the person who oversees our elections, the person who is next in line to be governor, makes $77,000 a year. That's less than a lot of Oregonians, that's less than members of the Portland City Council who have way less responsibility. Less than people in her office as well. I mean, so, but, and, and, that, and that was, you know, one of the points that was brought up to explain uh, why she would take these particular gigs. But, and maybe it's a fool's errand to try to get in the mind of, of, of anybody else ever, because who knows what's, what anybody else is ever thinking. But, uh, but Scott, I mean, how, yeah. what do you imagine that? Uh, what an often savvy political player like Shamia Fagan was thinking. How can she not have thought both that this would likely come out and that when it did, it would likely look very bad? Yeah, no, it's... It- it's inexplicable, Dave. I got to be honest with you. And you know, to, to Anna's point, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very low annual income. But she knew that going in. Um, you know, what, what's impressive to me, or not impressive, but what's what's you know, I think, kind of. And awe-inspiring, if you will, as far as just the, the bigness of it. That's probably the wrong way to describe it. But is the toppling effect that this does have? Because she was next in line to be governor. Uh, she, you know, I, everybody thought that she was, uh, you know, it would likely be hers. And now that's not going to happen. And so, not only to create the opportunity for others at the secretary of state level, but who's who will be the next governor after Tina Kotek? Nobody knows. And so that's the interesting thing with this. I do think, uh, you know, going back to the point about pay. Yeah, th- you are paid too low when you're paid. 
seventy some thousand dollars to be a statewide office. That is too low, and I think the legislature is working on that, or will be soon working on that to to address the pay of, of those statewide offices. Um, that, the bigger challenge is because of that. Uh, you know, the best and the brightest often don't run because they can't afford to. And so, I do think there's a case for good governance to be made about increasing the salaries, folks. But having said that, she knew full well what the salary was when she took the job. I want to turn to diversions here, sports. Um, the the Pac-12 athletic conference, it went from a, a slow motion implosion over the last two years to just a, a cataclysmic one this year. The universities of Oregon and Washington were among the last to leave and basically some of the dominoes that really just ended this. Leaving Oregon State and Washington State, uh, so the Pac-12 was a Pac-2, which is not a conference. Um, and the reason for the exodus was pretty straightforward. It was money in the form of TV rights for football. Scott, you went to the University of Oregon. You're a, a, a duck forever, I imagine. Yep. <laughs> how, how do you feel about the end of one of the most storied conferences in the country? I'm heartbroken about it. At, at least it. Oh. As, 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 as the end of it as we know it. It's possible it'll be resurrected, but it will yeah. not be the same yeah. thing. No, I'm, I'm heartbroken about it. I don't like the way it came about. Uh, I will, you know, I, it's, it's easy as an Oregon and an Oregon duck to throw blame. This all started with USC and UCLA. But bigger than that, it started with money and greed. And that's really what it's all about. Um, and Oregon and Washington are as susceptible to that as all the other schools. It really, from my perspective, is sad that we've taken amateur athletics and a great Pac-12 conference and those natural rivalries, uh, especially the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry, and now we've thrown that all away to chase the, 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 the next bigger dollar. I mean, I know that's naive in this day and age to, to say that, but that's that's how I feel about it. You know, what we've done, not only with the, you know, the chasing the dollars on the TV rights, but the, the paying of athletes and the incredible cost of everything else, uh, paying of, of amateur athletes, we've turned college sports into, you know, semi-professional sports. And I think you're going to find more and more people thinking, all right, if it's all about the money, it's all about who gets paid more, and that's the only thing that drives allegiances, and you've got the player portals where they're going to jump because they've, you know, got a better opportunity to make more money somewhere else. Why would people continue to support that and endorse that? Why not just be an NFL fan or an NBA fan? I mean, it, then, then there's at least no excuse about that it's all about money. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I, I'm absolutely heartbroken. Um, I am happy that next season there's going to be some, you know, game between Oregon and Oregon State. I think that's great, but it's a much different deal. And it's, I, I, I look at Oregon, as a duck, I can look at Oregon State and go, what incredible damage it has done to that school, uh, how it's hurt that school in so many ways. And then I, as a duck, I can also look at the athletes that aren't football athletes. I mean, think about, uh, you know, women's volleyball. Think about softball. Think about all these student athletes who who were contending with going to Seattle or the Bay Area now have to contend with going, you know, to the Midwest and farther east. That's that's just or, not or, a good way to live a college the, life. Or to the East Coast. Or to the East Coast. Uh, Anna, what does this mean for Oregon State? You know, in, in the short term, they they have they have essentially won their legal battle. Oregon State and and Washington State sued the departing. Colleges. I almost said sued the departing teams, which tells you what this is all about. Sued the departing colleges over control of the Pac-12's existing resources. Um, they, they reached a settlement after OSU and Washington State consistently won on the court level. So that, that gives them some agency. That gives them some money. In the long term, college sports are the haves and the have-nots now. Oregon State is a have-not. You know, and going back to Scott's point, this is a case where the vast majority of student athletes at all of these schools, volleyball players and golfers and runners and pole vaulters, whatever, they're just 
they're completely dependent on the financial reality that's connected to one sport. Um, could these realignments nationwide, could they be the impetus to divorce football from the rest of college athletics? Yeah, I, I've heard that. And I think they're, you know, you, you, we'll go into these next few seasons and you'll see the challenges that this travel and time away from campus will create for these non-football student athletes. And I think there will be either more and more impetus to do that, Dave, or to realign geographically again. I mean, I think Anna's point was right. The, the Pac-12 is done as we know it, but who knows what comes to, what come down comes down the road six or seven years from now. It may just be, it may prove untenable to sustain something like that. I'm curious, what else uh, the two of you think stories, news stories, did not get enough attention this year? Anna, what about you? You know, I, I think we have talked, but probably not enough because so many of us are in Portland and live along the I-5 corridor about water problems, mm -hmm. drought conditions down in the Klamath Basin, nitrates found in the water in places like Morrow County. We are headed toward Flint-level scandal. Mm -hmm and violence potentially in areas where there are fights over water rights between environmentalists, farmers, and, and business. Um, and I just don't think we can talk enough about the reality of our natural resource crisis coming up. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two, one's a positive, one's a negative, that have received some attention, uh, but not enough attention in Oregon media, if you will. Uh, the positive one is is just kind of following on the great work, the legacy work that Oregon legislature did this year on the semiconductor front. I mean, that really was probably the most important piece of economic, it's pieces because there are multiple multiple bills, but pieces of economic development legislation that the Oregon legislature has ever done. I mean, I put I put it as legacy legislation up there with the bottle bill, the beach bill, Senate Bill 100, land use. Uh, but what the Oregon legislature did not do uh, is kind of continue that great work on the semiconductor industry for the rest of manufacturing and advanced manufacturing in Oregon. It's an incredible part of our economy, so I'm hopeful that, and I'm confident, if you will, that the Oregon legislature will come back to that. On the negative side, the one thing that we're not really talking about, it, it, Willamette Week's done a little bit, uh, but not so much, is the incredible explosion of anti-Semitism, both nationally and in the state. We have seen just an incredible rise since October 7th, and I know people have various views, but what has come out of the woodwork is, is just fervent hatred of Jews and anti-Semitism. And I don't think we're talking about that because that is a cancer. Scott Bruin and Anna Griffin, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Scott Bruin served uh, three terms as a Republican in the Oregon House of Representatives. He is now the Vice President of Government Affairs at Oregon Business and Industry. Anna Griffin is the News Director at OPB. And we heard some but not nearly enough of Nikenge Harmon Johnson, President and CEO of the Urban League of Portland. We tried many ways to get her connection to work, but... It did not work. We will talk again with her. All next week, we are going to be hearing about some of the biggest challenges that Oregon faces as a state and some possible solutions. We're going to be listening back to a whole series of conversations we had all around the Portland area to talk with a solutions-focused lens about some of these big problems. Thank you so much for tuning in today and all this year to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Happy holidays. We will join you again on Monday. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, 
Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. 